Well, as some of you may know, my wife and I have two kids. We have a six-year-old daughter, Julianne, and an almost three-year-old son, Isaac. And it's just been in recent months that I'm realizing that Isaac is no longer just an innocent bystander. So you know how when they're little, little, you know, like one and two, they sort of get a pass a lot of the time? So, so for a while there, we would, if some fight would spring up or something would occur, some boo-boo would happen, we would, we would rush to comfort Isaac. And we would immediately say, Julie, what did you do to your brother? But we're realizing more and more that as the boo-boos happen, the fights, that I now have to have two conversations, one with Julie and one with Isaac. Because Isaac hits. Isaac likes to play on his terms sometimes. He doesn't always want to play on his sister's terms. Isaac is sometimes the aggressor. Isaac is finding his offensive game more and more these days. As we look at this difficult text in Ezekiel 25 and really the whole section that begins here and carries right through chapter 32, we make a transition. Because God, through the prophets, so far up to this point, has been having a talking to with his own people, with Israel, with his chosen people, because of their sin and their idolatry and their failure to uphold the covenant that they're in with God. But this morning, we look at this other, this second talking to that God has to have. And he has to have it with the nations around Israel. The nations around Israel. They need a strong word from him too. They are not just innocent bystanders, it would appear. And as we consider these prophecies, these oracles of chapter 25, I think that one thing shines through for us. And it's that God is Lord over all. That God is Lord over all. In other words, God has the right and the power to do whatever he decides. No thing, no person, no culture, no situation is outside of his authority. God is the Lord over all. But then I want to unpack that and I want to look at three specific things that we learn about God's lordship, his authority. The first thing we see is that God is Lord over the nations. God is Lord over the nations. Secondly, our God is Lord over the rises and the falls. He is Lord over the rises and the falls. And finally, our God is Lord over the battle. And friends, like I think that it was for the people of God at the time of Ezekiel, these words will both challenge us and comfort us as we seek God in this text. So with this in mind, let us first pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, we pray you would help us with difficult passages like this. Lord, help us to hear your voice, to perceive what you might have for us in this. Lord, help us to align ourselves and our lives with you, the Lord over all. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So firstly, 
God is Lord over the nations. It's interesting now because many of us, many of you may be watching the Olympics, the Winter Olympics. And so there's this, this moment each year or each few years where suddenly all the nations are in our scope as we watch athletes compete. But the reality is that this is God's reality all the time. All of the nations of the world are within his scope and within his authority. And so in this text, chapter 25, Ezekiel, God commands Ezekiel to prophesy against four kingdoms, four peoples. And these four kingdoms, they all happen to be immediate neighbors of Israel and of the southern kingdom of Judah. And in fact, they all move in a clockwise direction around the nation geographically. You have Ammon to the east, Moab and Edom to the east and to the south, and then Philistia to the west along the coast. Prophecies like this against the nations, these are actually quite a common feature in a lot of Old Testament prophecy. You have major prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah who have oracles against the nations. You have minor prophets like Obadiah and Nahum and Amos who have prophecies against the nations. And what's interesting about these four nations is that three of the four of them named in this chapter have family ties with Israel, have family ties, ancestral ties with God's people. And so Moab and Ben-Ami are two sons, and they are two sons of Lot. And you may recall from some strange passages in Genesis that, that Lot is the nephew of Abraham. Father Abraham, the patriarch of the Old Testament, out of whom would flow God's covenant people. And so that's Moab, and that's the Ammonites. The Edomites have even closer ancestral ties with Israel. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau. You may have heard of Jacob and Esau. Out of Jacob flowed the 12 tribes of Israel, and out of Esau flowed the Edomites. Those two brothers, Jacob and Esau, they, they seem to be at, at odds with each other from the very start. And this text will highlight that as well. The Philistines are a bit of an outlier. They have no, no ties ancestrally to Israel. But as we see throughout the course of Israel's history, Israel is often in conflict with them. As we see famously the story of David and Goliath. Goliath the Philistine. At various points in, in the history of God's people and under various kings, Israel at times subdues portions of these nations. At other times, they lose in certain conflicts and cede control. And so many of these lands, these territories are often up for grabs. There's often been an ebb and a flow between Israel and its neighbors. But an important question, I think, as we think about these oracles against these nations, is what are they being judged for? What is God's beef with them? What is God's issue? And as we look at the scriptures, historically, these people have been hostile towards God's people at various points, either as they are entering the promised land, this land that God was giving to them, or, or later on as things develop, these nations, these ones will look at allied with other nations against Israel. And so there's a history of hostility, a history of conflict. Another important piece is that these nations 
worshipped pagan gods, and, and sadly at times they seduced Israel. They seduced God's people to do the same and to follow idolatrous practices. But in chapter 25, it's their attitudes. It's their attitudes and their actions towards God's people, towards the nations as Israel is besieged and falling. So Ammon and Moab were guilty of rejoicing over Israel's demise. God says to Ammon in verses 6 through 7, Because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet, rejoicing with all the malice of your heart against the land of Israel, therefore I will stretch out my hand against you and give you as plunder to the nations. And then you have Moab, and Moab, it seems, became convinced that, that Israel was nothing special. Verse 8, they say, look, Judah has become like all the other nations. Judah being the southern kingdom of Israel, God's people. In other words, they're saying, see what's happening to them? They're nothing special. God can't be with them. Why should we revere Israel? For Edom, for Philistia, our other nations mentioned here, there's more of a sense of their active revenge, their vengeance against Israel. Israel. In verse 12, God says that Edom has taken revenge. In verse 15, says that the Philistines had acted in vengeance and took revenge with malice in their hearts and with ancient hostility sought to destroy Judah. So attitude and action. So through their perceptions of Israel, their rejoicing in what's happening to her, their opportunism as Israel is besieged and falling and they make certain land grabs and seize the opportunity to take vengeance and to settle old scores. This is what God has against them. They become enemies of God. And so the nations are in the scope of God. And there's this undeniable sense in the Bible that all nations all peoples, all of us will be accountable and are accountable before God. Even into the New Testament, we read Hebrews 4.13, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And then in Matthew chapter 25, the Gospel of Matthew is a, this famous picture of Jesus' final judgment as he returns and sets up his kingdom in its fullness. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the angels and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And so there is this sense, and it challenges us, it pushes us, that we are all accountable before God, that God is a universal judge. But church, we do balance this with another aspect of who God is, and that is his mercy. And so we know 2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, and said he is patient with you. He is patient with the nations, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. As we think about our own lives, as we think about our own world, our own front lines, those places where God has put us, 
Scripture teaches us that all people will answer to God. All people will one day stand before him. And so the challenge, the question for us is, will we trust in ourselves? Will we trust in our false idols? Or will we trust in Jesus, the only trustworthy one? And so this challenging picture, this challenging sense motivates our mission to the nations as we seek to move toward that vision of Revelation 7 of all nations, tribes, tongues, and languages worshiping before the throne of God. And so we go to the nations, but then we're also moved and we're also motivated to boldness in our own circles. God is also stirring us and stirring our heart towards our neighbors, our friends, and those on the front lines of our lives to know the love of God in Christ as well. So first thing, God is Lord over the nations. God's justice and his power applies to all people. But let's unpack this a little bit further. A second thing we see in our text is that God is the Lord over the rises and the falls. What do I mean by that? God is the Lord over the rises and the falls. Well, I don't know about you, but I need this reminder from Ezekiel. That God is still Lord even as we fail, even as we face challenges, even as we face persecutions and struggles, God is Lord over it all. We know, maybe you've picked up on if you've been tracking with with us in this series, that several times as the prophet gives a prophecy, whether it's to Israel or to the nations, God ends it with this. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Then they will know that I am the Lord. In other words, these things, these judgments have to happen. This restoration has to happen. And all of this is a sign and a signal of who is really in charge, of who is really sovereign, of who is really Lord. And that is the Lord God. And the point with all of this is that hearts would turn back to him in worship and in faith. As we've seen, these these nations, these four nations, they become objects of judgment because of their attitudes and their actions towards God's people. Israel is there besieged and falling, and foreign enemies and empires are coming in and overtaking them, and the nations rejoice at their downfall. But the point is, is that the only proper response to the fall and to the failure of God's people is lament and sorrow, not rejoicing. And so this grieves God's heart. Pastor JP recently lent me a book uh, on a topic that I'm thinking a lot about and exploring recently and he handed it to me, and I just sort of do the obligatory flip through, check the front and back cover. It looks, looks great. After a while, then, I noticed that right on the front cover is an, is, was an endorsement by a, a prominent Christian leader who, quite sadly, had a significant moral failure just recently, right on the cover. And I pointed this out, and, you know, we, we, you sort of sigh in that moment, like, oh. You feel it. When leaders, when leaders over God's church fail, it is difficult and heavy. 
Unfortunately, there seems too many of those stories, leaders failing, clergy failing, certain groups within the church of Christ presenting a bad image to the rest of the world. And like at the time of Ezekiel, the only proper response to that for us is lament and sorrow and examination of ourselves and repentance and renewal and not rejoicing. These words, I think, can in some sense help us check our own hearts at times, help us check our own attitudes, because there's times if we, if we confess, if we're honest, where we just sort of wish certain pockets or certain voices within the church would kind of go away. They would just disappear. Certain groups, perhaps, we wish they might just fail or decline or disappear. It can be subtle. It can be subtle in our hearts. Perhaps we don't agree with their theology. We don't agree with their methods. We don't agree with their politics. And how often do we just sometimes wish their demise or their failure? There is this sense in which God is purifying his church. And these sad, tragic stories are an opportunity for self-reflection, for repentance, and for renewal, as I've said. But like the nations in Ezekiel 25... It is a dangerous thing for any of us at any point to gloat over the downfall of God's people, over the downfall of any pocket of God's church. But here's the hope. Here's the hope, friends. Is that God is still Lord even in those rises and falls. That even as segments of the church or as God's people sometimes cause us a bad PR problem. Even as God's people face persecution and struggle and challenges and failures, even as we fail in our own walks, God is still Lord. He is still at work. He is still advancing his purposes in us. So as in Ezekiel, as in the other prophets, God's purposes prevail. He has to discipline his people. He has to purify his people, but then he restores his people, and we will get there. Hang on with us in this series. God is working. And so we're unpacking this text. God is Lord over the nations. The nations are under his scope and under his authority. His Lord over all. We will all day... We will all one day stand before him. Secondly, God is Lord over the rises and the falls. No matter the challenges, the persecutions, the struggles that you face, God is Lord over it. And he will move forward his purposes. But our last point for this morning, God is Lord over the battle. God is Lord over the battle. Well, as we've seen in this series, this sermon series, God has these severe messages for his people through the prophet. All the way up through chapter 25, it's been judgment against the nation, against Israel. It has been judgments against her sin, her persistent idolatry, her giving herself away to foreign gods, her failure to uphold the covenant. And so this transition that we hit right here is even more striking in that sense. It's even more striking that God would hit pause on that And that God would not overlook the opponents of his people, the enemies of his people. 
God sees. He sees the attitudes. He sees the actions. And he speaks to it. Sometimes in our lives, as we are following God, as we are people of conviction, people of faith, sometimes it feels like we might have real tangible enemies, real tangible opponents, voices in our lives that just seem to deliver blows against us as we try to follow God. As we live as people of faith and rub up against the world, this looks like the, maybe the jabs that we experience at work or at school. Or it may look like being overlooked for that promotion or not being given that invite. Or it may look like being the object of somebody's ridicule or jokes. Some of you may have experienced that. But we remember, too, that Christians and other parts of the world face much more severe persecutions. Christians living out their faith in other parts of the world face being disowned by their family, physical harm, imprisonment, and even death. But God sees it all. God sees his people. He sees you. He sees the struggles we face, and he does not overlook these things. But justice is up to him. We're reminded in Romans chapter 12, we let God handle the justice. Paul says there, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. But even more importantly here, as we think about our struggles, our temptations, our persecutions, our failures, is it's important to remember the nature of the battle we're in. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What's the point there? The point is that our battle is a spiritual one. Our battle is a conflict with spiritual forces of evil that are real and that are at work. But God is both warring for us, and equipping us and empowering us to fight as well. To put on his armor. To take advantage of the resources that he gives us to fight effectively. But the best news in that for us. Is that God has delivered a decisive blow against our enemies. That God in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection has vanquished all of our spiritual enemies. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, all these forces of darkness at work in our world against us, behind our opponents and our persecutions, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And we give thanks to God for that. So God's people here in Ezekiel, they have literal opponents. Sometimes we feel like we have literal opponents. 
But as we think about those and as we think about our spiritual struggles, our temptations, our persecutions, we remember that God is Lord over that battle. God is Lord over that battle. He is not unaware of what we face, what his church faces. But what is God's heart? What's the, what's the purpose? What is the purpose of these oracles against the nations? Well, in this section of text from chapter 25 to 32, right nestled in the middle of it is this hopeful vision for us and for God's people at the time. Chapter 28, verses 24 to 26, God says, No longer will the people of Israel have malicious neighbors who are painful briars and sharp thorns. Then they will know that I am the sovereign Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says, When I gather the people of Israel from the nations where they have been scattered, I will be proved holy through them in the sight of the nations. Then they will live in their own land, which I gave to my servant Jacob. They will live there in safety and will build houses and plant vineyards. They will live in safety when I inflict punishment on all their neighbors who maligned them. Then they will know that I am the Lord. What's the point there? God desires that his people will flourish. And he will deal with their enemies. He will create space for them to thrive and to settle once again. And so the point is that for us, even in the midst of our battles, even in the midst of our persecutions, our struggles, God has given us everything that we need to flourish in him as we trust him. So God is Lord over the battle. What do we do with all this? What is the point of this hard passage in Ezekiel 25 for us? What do we do with this oracles that were delivered to nations halfway across the world some 2,500 years ago through a guy named Ezekiel? The point is that we're developing our view of God. We're enriching our understanding of who God is, his nature, his character. And we see that he is Lord over the nations, that one day we will all stand before him. We are all accountable to him. We see that God is Lord over the rises and the falls, even as leaders fall, even as the church at times experiences persecutions and struggles, even when the people of God struggle rather than prosper, God is still Lord. His kingdom still advances. His purposes still prevail. And we align ourselves with him. Finally, as we saw, God is Lord over the battle. He is Lord over the battle. Just as he was with Israel, he is now with us. He is now with you. He is not oblivious to the opponents you face. He is not oblivious to the temptations you experience. He does not overlook our struggle. Rather, he empowers us. He arms us and he gives us all the resources we need to fight in the power of his might. Let us pray. Lord, you are a mighty God. Lord, help us to appreciate more fully who you are. And God, as we think about this heavy word, would you just apply this by the power of your spirit in our lives to know that you are for us, that you are Lord, 
and that you invite us again to yourself today to follow you in faith. So Lord, work in our hearts, work in our midst as we consider this this week. In Jesus' name, amen.